Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. Uh, so what, what's your story? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Okay. Yeah. Um, I kind of got into physical therapy in a roundabout way. I didn't actually always know that I wanted to be a PT, despite like everything in my life actually making sense for why I would want to be a PT. Um, I was an athlete in college at, at Nova. I was on the rowing team, um, worked with phenomenal PTs, like definitely was exposed to it and, you know, but just never really thought of it, I guess, in the moment. Um, I studied neuroscience in undergrad and thought that I was going to go down a PhD path. So I did the thesis, lots and lots of research, worked in um, some pretty awesome uh, neuroscience labs throughout the country um, and thought that was what I was going to do. And when I was at the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis down here in Miami, which is a phenomenal spinal cord and brain injury research center, um, I was like, man, I spend more time with rats than I do with humans. And I'm just always on a microscope. And I don't know if this is it. Like, I love science, but I don't know. Um, and on the first floor, the research facility was run by a physical therapist, um, Dr. Fields Fote. She is like mover and shaker in the spinal cord injury rehab world. And that was when I first kind of realized that I could be a PT and do research and kind of combine everything and not only be on a microscope for 12 hours a day. Um, I would go through days where I wouldn't speak to another human. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. Um, and bench science is so, so important, but I just kind of felt like I wanted something a little bit different. So I met with the physical therapist who ran the research and clinical side of things. And she, really opened my eyes to what kind of things I could do as a PT. So I rerouted everything and decided to apply to PT school. <laughs> so um, in the moment, I was like, oh my gosh, my life is over. I'm doing something so different than what I thought. This is a mess. Um, and I took a couple years off and took some prereqs that I needed to and applied to UM and ultimately got into UM. And that's when I started the PT journey, which is a little bit roundabout, but yeah. Are so, you really doing any research or not? So from there in PT school, um, I stayed really interested in neuroscience, but I also love ortho and that's what my facility is, um, like a sports ortho setting. So kind of going through all of that with my neuroscience background, I was involved, I was a graduate assistant for the neuro department at UM. I continued to do some research on um, like the effects of uh, exercise on neuroplasticity and how the brain works and how we think. Um, so kind of always tying it all together. And now um, I use a lot of neuroscience principles for how I treat my patients. I can kind of go into that a little bit later, but um, I, one of like my favorite things that our professors, a couple of different professors we had at UM would say, um, we have a fantastic cardiopulmonary uh, physical therapist who teaches us for our cardio course and a fantastic um, neuro PT as well. And they both said like, every patient has a brain, every patient has a heart. So every patient is a neuro and a cardio patient. So I kind of use that in my practice now, even though it's definitely like a performance and sports setting. Um, but currently now to kind of blend the worlds, I teach neuroscience courses where I went to undergrad at NOVA. So I teach and then I get to do my practice. So it's, I'm very fortunate. It's like the two things that I want to do and I get to do them both. You're living the dream. 
It's pretty cool. It's busy. It's busy. I need more hours in the day, but um, it's amazing. <laughs> and I feel very lucky for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I am very interested to hear your approach when implementing neuroscience yeah. with these rehab patients. So what are some of the principles that you utilize? Yeah, so um, I think my understanding of neuroscience really helps me to look at things in maybe a deeper and different way um, to ultimately benefit my patient. I think as PTs, a lot of times, like our favorite part is educating people. Um, like I love, maybe maybe they don't want to hear it as much, but I love talking to my patients and explaining why what's going on is happening. Um, I really like to get complex cases where people have gone other places and they haven't gotten things figured out. Um, and I like to try to dive into, from kind of a neuroscience perspective, what's going on, whether that is... Um, even just how they're responding to their pain and what that's doing to their nervous system over time. So kind of like a pain science approach. Um, I think one of my favorite things that I work on with people, especially people with chronic pain, um, are, is breathing. So I do a ton of work on breathing and kind of explain it to people about how really, you know, the one way that our bodies can communicate to our brain is through our breath. Um, our breath kind of dictates to our brain, at least what situation we're in. If we're taking shallow, rapid breaths all of the time, because we're in chronic pain, the brain's going to take that and think, oh God, something terrible is going on. We better get into sympathetic overdrive and we better freak out and try to figure out what lion is testing our survival or what evolutionary mechanism is going on to make this person be, um, in this panic state. So I utilize just educating people on their breathing and how, um, you know, we got to strengthen the diaphragm and breathing muscles the same way we would with any other muscle and try to create better balance in the sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system for people who are in like this pain state all the time. Um, and that's, I have a lot of success with it. You know, it's, I always kind of explain to people at first, it does, it takes a little bit of buy-in because you're coming to a PT and you're an athlete and I'm making you lay on a table and breathe and you think it's crazy. Um, and I utilize it in a way where I really teach the foundations first. And then we add in that ability to really harness your breath for the type of performance you're doing while we strength train and while we do functional movement. Um, so I get, like I said, a lot of you know hesitation at first until I really explain what's going on. And I'm lucky that I have a patient population where we're cash pay. So if people are coming to see me, they do wanna be there, which is really nice. So typically, they're interested and they're already kind of excited to do what we're going to work on, which I feel really fortunate about too. Um, so yeah, that's the, one of the main principles I use from the, the neuroscience standpoint when, with how I treat. Do you think that breathing helps a lot? I mean, obviously it's due to many different factors, but do you think that it also works because it places patients on this parasympathetic state and as a byproduct, like stress, like it's kind of like a stress relieving, relieving technique, right? For sure. So the biggest way that I explain it to patients, um, and I utilize this stuff with everybody who, from people who have had chronic low back pain for 20 years to Olympic sailors who need to be better um, able to perform under pressure. So it's with a very vast variety of patients, which is cool. Um, but I basically explain it to people where most people, um, they kind of go through life shallow chest breathing and walking around and even changing positions, holding your breath. Like if you really think about it, you probably hold your breath a lot during the day. Um, it's just something that we tend to do. And even if we're not in a painful or panic state, 
what that does is send a lot of signals to the brain that something is wrong. So shallow breathing, if you're not getting a good exhale, which as you mentioned, the exhale is really when we get into that parasympathetic state, that inhale is gonna be more sympathetic and then being able to exhale gets us into that parasympathetic zone. So if we're taking shallow breaths and we're not exhaling really well, we're kind of tipping the scale over into the sympathetic side. Or if we're holding our breath when we're performing, we are now building up CO2, which sends another type of panic response to the brain. Like, oh God, like this person is holding their breath, they can't breathe, we better respond sympathetically. So those things perpetuate that pain response and increased muscular tension, change in heart rate, change in respiratory rate in the average person, and then also can be such a detriment to performance in the elite athlete as well. So if I can teach people who are in chronic pain or who really are high performers, um, something they can control and feel in control of like their breathing, that's a game changer for your pain in your day-to-day -day life or your high stress situation in an Olympic level sport. Um, so it's the utility across all patient populations is really cool. Like that's what I get excited about because it's, I'm not changing the way I'm treating somebody who is maybe deconditioned versus somebody who is an elite athlete. So that's, what's fun about it. Yeah. I, I usually find myself recommending diaphragmatic breathing to a lot of patients. It's one of yeah. my go -tos. and it's easy. Yeah. You, know, you can do it anywhere. You don't need anything. I like to think too. I remember, um, first finishing PT school and um, I took kind of a risk and didn't take a job and decided to start my own thing, um, which is terrifying and I'm still figuring it out. But um, I remember thinking, being very worried, like, gosh, what if I can't help people who come in to see me? Like I still, you know, the imposter syndrome, like I don't know anything. Um, and I always told myself like, I should be able to find at least three things that I can help people with. And one of them is always gonna be breathing. And so I didn't realize how much thinking that in the beginning was gonna translate into how much I actually do use it. Um, and I think that's important as rehab professionals for us to know, like we know so much more than we think and we have so many more ways to help people than we think. Um, and something that is so impactful, like if you fix those 20,000 breaths that person is taking every single day to either work for them or against them, if we actually make the breath work for them, like we've made a massive impact in just, just from the education side of it alone, um, which I think is really empowering for uh, rehab professionals. We tend to be um, perfectionists and, and get worried that we're not helping people enough. And I think there's always an opportunity to with breathing, which is cool. Um, and to kind of, I guess, segue into that, we it's cool to see the effect of it on all levels of in all spe like areas of spectrum on the, of care because that's what we do at at old bull where my facility is um my partner and i frankie telford he's the gym owner and i came in and brought the therapy practice um it's all one-on-one -on -one training and therapy and we get to kind of meet patients where they're at and help them um regardless of where they are on that spectrum and the same thing holds through with, with how we work on the breathing practice too so it's pretty awesome if i do say so myself Nice. It would make a lot of sense that we would, you know, utilize these breathing techniques prior to maybe the rehab process because we're desensitizing their pain and that will make them potentially less fear avoidant in certain movements. But I'm curious, are you implementing breathing maybe for the first session and then they come back the second session and then we start introducing movement? How does that uh, interplay happen? Because well, let's say you try to teach them how to breathe and then you uh, try to implement it with movement and then they lose that technique of breathing. So I was just curious your philosophy on how you would play with those two variables. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I think like um, every PT's favorite response is it depends. So um, a lot of times it's, it really depends on the person and how much help they need on the breathing side of it and how autonomous they are to work on some things at home. Um, the way I explain it to a lot of people is it's progressive overload, just like any other muscle group. So we're learning different techniques and starting very much from the basics. And then the way you um, increase load or change intensity or frequency for breathing, um, you know, I put them in different positions and require them to breathe, which puts an entirely different effect of gravity on the muscles of, um, of the core and of the diaphragm. Um, I will have them hold positions that are important for their sport and breathe through them or um, go through actually painful ranges of motion, but control their breath through them. And so they can see that they are actually able to control how much pain they feel when they're going through a position that they might've been scared of before. Um, for example, I have, um, a really interesting case right now. Um, I have a like a heavy metal um, headbanger who came to see me, who has really injured his neck quite a bit um, from like 20 years of holding a really heavy bass and headbanging and getting into crazy positions of like a lot of back extension. Um, and I'm basically explained to him, like we're teaching headbanging, like it's his sport and we're going to make sure he can headbang more optimally because I know I'm not going to get him to stop. Um, and it's, it sounds hilarious because it's, I've definitely never worked with a heavy metal headbanger before. Um, but after I ruled out, um, you know, any sort of, uh, Thing going on at the spinal level that could have been more serious. Um, we basically work on him going through neck range of motion in all possible planes, positions that normally would be fearful and painful for him and having him breathe through them and teaching him how to better brace himself and his core and his, use his diaphragm when he's thrashing his body. So um, it's super interesting, like being able to find exactly what that person needs in that moment. So whether that is we teach them the basics in the beginning and they practice at home and then they can carry over into the movement part. Um, but it's, it's usually a mixture of all of the above. Like I'm typically, unless somebody's coming to me with like a you know, nerve dysfunction that is actually causing a weakened diaphragm where we really need to hammer and strengthening it. Um, it's always a mixture of all of the above because breathing supine, very still relaxed. That's great. But like, you're not probably doing that in your day to day as much. So you need to be able to move too. Um, so it's all about challenging people at the right times and making sure that we're progressing them. So they're, you know, they're breathing in positions that actually matter, not just in a very controlled setting where my hands are on their ribs and I'm helping them expand. Um, it just, we have to go through the steps in the beginning and then get into that stuff. It's, it's, I'm, I'm curious, is there a screening process that you may go through in the very beginning where like, okay, I'm, there might be a deficit in the way you breathe? Yeah. So the cool thing too, is now that I'm getting, you know, other referrals from people who've worked with me before, um, just who, for people who are having breathing problems. So I do get people who come in already saying, which is cool because I think it's something that we're talking about more than maybe in the medical system we weren't. Um, or, so I get people who come to me already saying that they know that they want to work on some breathing dysfunction. Um, but otherwise, if it's somebody who, I mean, I can even kind of assess when I'm talking to them, if I see that they're getting out of breath talking to me, or if they're talking about things that kind of sound like, you know, they're in sympathetic overdrive all of the time, um, introducing the topic of breathing is important. Um, and then really, 
easy screening tool I can have people do is just put a hand on their chest and a hand on their stomach and have them take five deep breaths in and see what hand moves more. Typically, they're doing one of these and I can already tell that, okay, they're using their chest, they're using their accessory muscles. They probably don't really know how to get that diaphragm activated. Um, or if it's, again, a patient who's coming to me for something that definitely has to do with like their back and their core strength, then chances are um, we consider the diaphragm to be a core muscle. So chances are their diaphragm isn't working as optimally as it should be. Um, so there's that, but that, that hand on the chest and hand on the stomach is kind of like quick and dirty, really good assessment to see. Um, you can also have people hold their breath for basically as long as they can before they feel like they have to exhale. Um, and that kind of tests very simply like CO2 tolerance, like how able they are to tolerate having a CO2 buildup, um, which again is important for that sympathetic versus parasympathetic response for holding your breath during, during training or performance and how quickly you're sending that signal to your brain, like freak out. So those are some things I use. Is that the, the bolt score, I believe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. You do yeah like I, that's I, awesome. What was that? You do like breathing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I I did a little bit of reading on the Bolt score, and I and you mentioned like you know it's about the tolerance uh, that somebody has with the CO two CO two buildup, and um, so aside from breathing, could could we maybe just explore different cardiovascular in, like exercises to enhance the Bolt score as well? For sure. Yeah. Um. And there's also. Yeah, absolutely. There, like there's a lot of opportunities and that's why this is fun stuff to get people to also um, work on on their own. Cause a lot of people aren't coming, like I won't in a session be doing necessarily like a cardiovascular training session. Um, but things that if I do have people who are um, endurance type athletes working on CO2 tolerance and working on nasal breathing so they don't feel like they're, they're you know, um, having a CO2 buildup, even though you can't exhale as much through your nose as you would through your mouth. Um, so there's a lot of different principles that we can use. Um, things like box breathing, where you're inhaling for a count, holding for a count, exhaling for a count. Again, a lot of it is about really kind of making people in control of how to calm themselves down when they're performing or when they're in pain, which I think is very, very important. A lot of times, you know, if it's the, the, the lack of control that can be very, very upsetting for people who are in pain all the time and feeling like there's nothing they can do to just even a little bit curb that pain. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we always talk about like most, most of the pain experience is contributed to the fact that they don't know when it's going to end, you know, and, and you as a professional, you can kind of curb that pain experience by not only giving them somewhat of a timeline, but giving them tools to mod modulate the pain that they're currently feeling. So I think that's very, that's very important to have as a clinician. I am curious when you are teaching neuroscience at the undergraduate level. Um, I mean, are you relatively new at this job? Um, I've taught for two semesters so far, like four classes each. So I'm new. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear about the, if there was a learning curve for you. Um, Kind of. So I love teaching and I think that's ultimately my favorite thing. And that's why um, I probably like talk my patients ears off because I get super excited and I pull out my skeleton and my 3D anatomy app and I'm like um, diving in. So that part is awesome. And that's really it's I'm, I'm lucky that I think that part comes a little bit naturally. What is hard, though, is knowing 
how deeply to dive for undergraduate purposes versus like the um, getting into the weeds like I probably really want to do um, and knowing kind of what's appropriate for somebody who's a junior in college neuroscience major versus somebody who's like PhD level neuroscience or a physical therapist or um, a chiropractor or some sort of um, higher level clinician. So that, but with, with that being said, I think what's been interesting um, is that I, I think I might be one of the few faculty members who's also a clinician. So I get to show students things with like real examples or talk about my patient caseload or um, things that I think stick sometimes a little bit more to a student who um, most neuroscience majors are pre-med, pre-dentistry, pre-farm, pre-PT, pre-PA, something like that. So a lot of them do want to actually um, treat patients. So I'm able to add that, which is good. Um, but I'm still working on how I know what the right amount of information is for somebody um, who's like 19 and is like, okay, lady, relax. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think one thing I really try to do is I try to run my courses more like graduate level courses to prepare. Cause if you're a neuroscience major, like you're going to grad school, um, you're not just doing that for fun. Um, and it's, these students are really highly motivated and um, we do a lot of like Socratic seminar type discussion things. And for their papers that they do, like they have autonomy to choose whatever topic they want. So they actually enjoy it. Um, and I, I try to do that to make it a little bit more, um, even some, like I have a class that's kind of run more like a journal club where we talk about current topics in neuroscience and kind of controversial things and um, to give students a little bit more of like what the real type of, of science and literature and, and um, the possibilities that they have to explore. So that part's been good, but still figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah, I had to ask because not only do him and I want to eventually be professors at some level, but also like when we're working with our patients, it's it's the same battle. Like, how much do you really want to know? Am I overeducating you right now? Because, you know, right. you just got to read the room and sometimes it's hard. Some people have a poker face, right? So right. You know. yeah, and they're like, wow, this is interesting. And internally, they're like, I wish this person would stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's so true, though. I think it's about reading the room. I think as we get more experience, we're going to become even better at that. Um, one thing, one of my um, professors from undergrad, um, she was my biggest research mentor. And now, weirdly enough, hers, she's my colleague, so it's crazy. But um, she actually, we had an assignment that we had to do in one of her higher level neuroscience courses um, where we had to explain a kind of more complex neuroscience topic to a group of students who were completely outside of the major, like dance majors. And they had to be able to like understand and actually give back information of what they learned. So if you can, the, with the goal being, if you can teach essentially lay people a very complex topic, like you kind of know what you're doing and you're gonna be able to convey a message without going into the weeds or using a lot of jargon or talking in a way that only if you were speaking to again another person exactly with your experience but understand because ultimately like we're talking to people who don't understand this stuff and that's why they're coming to us and you know I would never want to come off in a way where I'm now made something unnecessarily complex and they're so put off by um by what we're doing because that's not what it's about either like they just need to know what's going on and that's it oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if anybody here has experienced it, but maybe there's a, a part of ego that's good that comes along with it. Like you first come out of school and you're almost a little insecure about your, your skill set. So you start shooting for those top, top like shelf words. Cause it's just like, Oh, if I lay out this word, 
they know I know what I'm talking about, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And we do also learn a new language when we're clinicians and in the rehab world where to you and I, to all of us talking, there are certain like phrases that make more sense for us to say to each other, even though to the lay person, it sounds very, very complex, but it sounds, it's easier for us to speak that way to each other. We have to remember that that's not the case. Like sometimes people aren't, don't know what your quad versus your hamstring are. So like, we can't assume that even though to us, that's, that seems like common knowledge. So I think the fun part and the tricky part of being a newer clinician is kind of navigating through that and figuring out, like I, I found out now a couple ways that I know that if I explain this kind of tough topic using this type of verbiage, um, it, it works usually for kind of any patient person, so patient population. So I've been having a fun time kind of figuring out ways that I know will make sense versus ways that like are stroking my ego that to show that, oh, I know what I'm talking about. Look at these <laughs> words that I'm using and I'm a neuroscientist, you know, it's just like, that's not what it's about, but it's hard. For sure. Now with, you know, we mentioned that, you know, you're utilizing breathing to help your patients and um, that's like a specialty in its own right. I'm just curious, are you diving into any other techniques or anything that you're currently learning right now that you're looking to implement with your patients? Yeah. I mean, the breathing is definitely just like a sliver of it in general, the, the, my main way that I practice and that I work with patients is definitely through like a strength approach. Um, I'm fortunate that our facility is this huge open space with every kettlebell you could ever imagine. Um, and everything that I do is ultimately to optimize how people move. So like every little back pain patient I get, they're learning how to deadlift before they leave. Like all those things, regardless of who they are, where they come from, the crazy physician that told them they could never lift more than 10 pounds again. Um, we're doing things like that. So it's definitely the big overarching theme a facility is strength and, and optimal movement. Um, like my evaluation, for an example, I don't typically do like an MMT and GONI measurements. It's a, it's a movement assessment and it's, it can change based on what the person, um, what their activity is or what, what is required of them. Um, so movement is definitely like the biggest piece of it all. And um, I have a very like biomechanical approach that I like. So learning and diving deeper into that is stuff that I'm kind of always doing. Um, and, but otherwise I haven't, I haven't had another, like a, a specialty or thing that I'm trying to really dive into at the moment, other than trying to get even better at what I'm already doing. Um, I think I can be guilty of, and a lot of clinicians can be guilty of getting really excited by like this new thing to dive into and to try. Whereas right now I'm trying to just get really, really good at these things that I've already started to build. Um, so I'm not jumping all over the place with this like new ideology that I get excited by, which is hard because I do get excited by that stuff. Um, and I'm sure you guys can relate. Like you hear this, you see an Instagram post and you're like, whoa, I should totally start doing that. And then you go down a rabbit hole and now you have these like 17 new techniques you want to try. Um, so I'm trying to just get continually better and better and better at the things that I've already started to dive into. Now, I could be overly reductionist in this thought process, so you can definitely correct me here. And I just think about like when a lot of times when we're trying to focus on improving, let's say, neuroplasticity or something that's very specific within the brain, um, it kind of like you can kind of just like zoom out and just be like, well, all right, we're trying to do cross eccentric exercises to help develop hand-eye coordination or something with neuroplasticity. Well, it's just like, well, hand-eye coordination can be a million different exercises, but some people try to just kind of 
let's say uh, like you know, dead bugs or bird dogs, like, oh, this is the magical exercise. And I just, do you think that a lot of this stuff is almost um, too zoomed in essentially? For sure. Um, and I think that's maybe where I don't subscribe to some um, techniques and ideologies that at first I might've thought I would be interested in, um, where I totally agree with you. I think a lot of times we, um, and this could get into a conversation of like sports specific training too. I think there's too many things that we're trying way, way, way too hard to put these like very fine lines and, and, and definitions on what we think is important for a person um, and only train them within that, that area. And I think it's very important. Bigger picture is what matters the most. And like, foundational movement patterns and foundational things I would argue are more important for any athlete than um, some of the things that we really I think people get into the weeds about like standing on a crazy surface and catching a light up ball and and doing these things where in reality okay but like how how is their squat how is their deadlift how is like these things that I, I think matter more um, and then you could say the same for a neuroscience perspective too it's really easy to um, overcomplicate things and give a rationale that makes sense and makes sense from a textbook for sure. But um, we aren't textbooks. And I think there's a lot of utility and um, a more general and more reductionist approach than a lot of people do. I completely agree with you. Um, and that, that's, it's hard because the things that a lot of um, patients and a lot of people are exposed to on social media are these like crazy, seemingly exciting movements and they want to learn something new. And um, I forgot who said it, but um, I always give this quote where like strength training, and I can say the same thing for rehab is essentially doing the same six movements until you die. Like that is, that is what it is. And you're just maybe doing something single leg or changing the tempo or adding a load. Um, but I think it's more important that we get really, really good at the basics and then go from there. Uh, so I don't, I don't think it's reductionist, but I think other people might. Yeah. And, and honestly, rehab should be simple because simple gets the job done and patients will actually do it. But if you give them like crazy exercise that makes no sense in their mind, they're going to be like, you know what? I don't like this. This is too hard. I'm not going to do it. Right. And if we really, as clinicians, um, what I think we need to do a better job of in the PT and rehab world is actually following principles of progressive overload and things that, um, you know, if you come in, if a patient comes in and I'm throwing crazy stuff at them all the time, like I'm not making an ad adaptation, I'm not changing a movement pattern, I'm not allowing for motor learning at all. Whereas if we fine tune someone's hinge pattern and now they can move in a way where they don't have back pain when they pick stuff up, or they can actually progress from hinging with a kettlebell to a trap bar to a dead, to a barbell, like that's huge. And the person sees that progress too, rather than these arbitrary art, crazy things thrown at them. Whereas they can see, okay, I used to only be able to use a kettlebell and a decreased range of motion to get a hinge. And now I'm doing a straight barbell. Like that's crazy. And that's exciting. Um, so I think there's so many things that go into exercise selection and not going too crazy and trying to make something so specific for that person for what you think they need versus what they should probably be doing to move better like as a human instead of this box that we put them in if that makes sense yeah yep. and and just like one, once again just to ring the same bell saying keep it simple like by just changing a kettlebell to a trap bar it's it is a massive difference if you like when we talk about loading it right yeah and if you're trying to like get patients excited about becoming stronger and more resilient, like that's a great way to do it. That's like a piece of equipment that someone never thought they could use 
or they've been so intimidated by seeing a barbell or seeing anything that they never thought they had any business needing to do. And you've now shown them that they can, um, like at any age. And it's just, that stuff is what I get excited about and what I think patients ultimately get excited about more than like standing on a BOSU ball, I think. <laughs> yeah, BOSU balls should, should be banned. <laughs> right, I could not agree more. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the process of opening up your own business or clinic uh, right after school. This sounds stressful. It was super risky. I don't really <laughs> know in retrospect, um, but I kind of, I thought that I knew I wanted to do cash PT. I knew I wanted to work within a gym setting. And I kind of told myself that if I took a job, even part-time, that my side hustle would forever stay a side hustle. And unless I was forced in a really uncomfortable position, meaning like I only had enough money in my bank account for one more month of rent, that um, I wouldn't do it unless I had to. So I was like, yeah, we'll just see how this goes. Um, I was fortunate during PT school to be a trainer at a gym where the owner, and this is different from my situation now, but I'll explain that, um, a different gym, but where the owner was really cool with as soon as I graduated and passed the boards that I could set up a cash PT practice. And in a way that um, we had a really nice arrangement where it was something that I actually could do because I wouldn't have crazy overhead and things that, which I totally recognize why it would be very hard for people to do this. I got very, very lucky with this gym owner that I met. Um, so I did that and it started out really, really well. Like it was, it was great. I was in this, uh, this facility that was doing one-on-one -on -one training. So it was a kind of an easy segue and I had people kind of waiting for me to graduate so they could start working with me, which was cool. Um, and I did that for a while. And then um, it was going again, going very well. And I met my current business partner, um, Frankie, who owns Old Bull Athletics. I went in there to do a Squatober workout with uh, one of his friends who was a trainer there. And he started talking to me and asking like, oh, you're a PT. We should talk if there's ever, um, if you'd want to see patients here. Like I definitely have people who are interested. So um, I told him I'd give him about a year of seeing coming in every now and then and, and taking some patients here and there, but you know, told him I was trying to build a practice myself. Um, after like four or five months, the, uh, the relationship was so good and everything he was doing at this facility was like spot on with what I wanted. So um, I was like, all right, let's do this. And I brought my practice over there um, and we've been going kind of at it ever since. And we've since hired two more PTs and we're probably gonna hire another one pretty soon. Um, and it's been amazing, best decision. Like it was, I started off again, very fortunate with the decision and I'm forever grateful um, for the gym owner that helped me in the first place. But the way that Frankie already operated his facility and his ideologies for training and it being very movement-based, like it was just, seamless adding in the physical therapy side of it. Um, so we've been really fortunate to be um, in an area of Miami where we can really sustain a cash practice. And it's been, it's been amazing. Like, again, just very grateful for how it's gone um, and how we're continually progressing with, with the, the clinic. It's been great. Awesome. Yeah. A lot of fun. 
I always like to try to wrap up the podcast with a little bit of humility. I'm always, I'm always curious to hear people that are in like, you know, in healthcare, if, if they've ever had like that one patient that may have gotten away or that awkward situation, or you couldn't figure out the issue that they were having just that one time that you're humbled and you're maybe still puzzled as to why that encounter went a certain way. Oh yeah. Um, for sure. I think I probably, this is, comes down to me thinking I could handle something more than I could at the setting I was at. So um, I have a, obviously a neuroscience background. I did internships in neuro rehab and spinal cord injury, um, but my facility is not designed for neuro patients. Like it's an open space gym. I don't have parallel bars. I don't have um, a clear place for someone with a walker or an assistive device to use necessarily as you would in a traditional neuro clinic. Um, and I, I definitely, I took on a patient who, um, she was older post, um, brain aneurysm had a lot of walking deficits, a lot of issues, um, where it became, and I sold them on telling them my background and what I could do that I've worked with so many patients like this before. And, um, just definitely did not have the right stuff to help her um, to where I basically told them like, I will find you somewhere better to go, but I just don't think that I have the access to the things that you ultimately need with me um, here. And that was hard because this is like a bread and butter kind of case that I would love to work with. Um, and it was, it seemed like something that made the most sense, but I definitely overestimated um, what I could actually do for her in that setting. And that was hard. It was really hard to admit. Um, it was really hard to make maybe that person feel like um, I overpromised and underdelivered. And of course, they were the nicest family and they were completely okay with it and probably were grateful that I sent them somewhere that was better for them. But it would, that was really hard. Um, that, and I still, like I, that's such an unfortunate situation because I thought I could do so much and I just couldn't. And um, I think learning that and knowing that is really important. Um, so it just, you know, it's a learning experience for sure. Yeah. I mean, these are the type of situations that kind of like give you the hard lessons that you're never going to forget, you know? Absolutely. And I think about that all the time. And I think about more realistically what I can really do for people. Um, and even though I like a certain patient population, and even though in theory, I know a lot about it, um, there's just some things that uh, that aren't going to work for where I'm at. And that's okay. And I should take patients where um, my setting is actually like the most optimal for them. And like, that's what I should be searching for. So it kind of reframed um, me acknowledging just because I'm good at something or I like something doesn't mean I need to push myself to do it when it's not really appropriate. This has been amazing, Katie. Thank you very much. Where can everyone find you? Um, I guess my Instagram, um, it's just KT Dabrowski. So the, that great long last name. Um, and our gyms page is Old Bull Athletics. Um, we post a lot of really good educational stuff there too, between all the PTs and trainers. Um, so yeah, those are the best ways. Yeah, the, those profiles will be linked to the show notes just in case anybody wants to uh, contact you. Cool. Thank you guys so much. I was really excited to do this because I love all of the topics that you guys cover. I think you're covering a lot of the stuff that um, people are becoming more and more interested in, but there's still not a lot of coverage on it. So like scrolling through Spotify, every single talk, I'm like, oh, this is good. Oh my gosh, they're talking about this. This is so cool. Um, <laughs> so I'm humbled to be here and I, I really appreciate um, you guys wanting to do this. This has been great. Absolutely. Thank you for your time.
awesome. Hey, this is going to be cut now. Yeah. Perfect. Now we're technically off air. Off air. Well, tech, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great job. I don't know if you've been on a podcast before, but you did phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I don't think I've ever been on an actual podcast, though, especially one that I like really like. So <laughs> well, this has been great. Yeah. You guys asked such good questions. So thank you. Hey, you answered them. Typically, I put people on the spot, not intentionally. And like, you know, I usually get the, oh, and then there's a long, long awkward, awkward silence. Yeah. And I'm like, I wish I can just take that question back. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool that you're you're teaching right now because that's something that, um, and another thing that you mentioned that I think I'm gonna, I resonated well with is the fact that him and I are, are graduating in about six months from now. And, you know, I'm having all these different ideas like, okay, if, if I'm trying to start my business, maybe I can do teaching on the side or I can do this, this and that. But you made a great point. It's just, if you don't throw yourself into the fire, you might just, this may just stay as a side business. Yeah. And, and I, again, I recognize entirely like the fortunate situation I had with somebody already willing to give me a space um, because if it, I mean, you know what it's like coming out of grad school, I had no money, like nothing whatsoever. And um, we had a, a percentage split instead of me having to pay rent. So I had no upfront costs. He renovated the office space for me, anything I needed. He was like, right now, you know, I'll buy it through the business. And then as we, our percentage split goes, like you'll, it'll kind of pay me back. And like, that's huge. I could have never done that any of this without that and I recognize that and I'm you know I feel very very lucky but I do think like if you want to do something you just kind of have to throw yourself into it and make it where like this has to work um and then kind of the comfort of our profession is like you know you'll be able to find a job if you need it to like that was kind of how I thought about it like even if it was inpatient something I really didn't want to do like I could get a job at the local hospital if I really really needed to so I, that was something that I kind of tried to hold on to while I was having like anxiety attacks every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. but the teaching stuff is great because, um, I mean, with a DPT, like it's a doctorate, you can teach if you find the right programs. Um, so I think it's awesome that you guys are interested in that too. It's really fun. It's really, really fun. It's, um, it's going to be something that I look forward to. Um, you mentioned you did a, a master's and a thesis as well. I did it as an undergraduate. I was crazy. Oh, okay. Um, what was the thesis on? Um, it was actually, and again, this is weirdly before I knew I wanted to be a PT. I compared different types of like brain training exercises with actual physical exercise and the impact on things like response inhibition, um, judgment, decision-making. Um, again, things that like, and the looking back, I'm like, of course I wanted to be a PT. <laughs> like why? Like college athlete had awesome experiences with PT, like studied this stuff. And then I had no idea. <laughs> so um, yeah. So uh, that was the, like an honors thesis I did during undergrad. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, yeah. this has been great. I have to couple, do a couple things now. So thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for yeah. your time. Thank you, Have guys. Have a great day. Awesome. All right. Bye. Oh, shit.